for a guest. We've been working through the book of John for several months now, and uh, we have come to chapter 13. Chapter 13. This introduces what's called the upper room discourse or sometimes the farewell discourse as our Lord is growing with each hour closer to that time when he will give up his life for his people to take the wrath of God for his people. Let's read. We're going to look at the first 20 verses this morning in the upper room. God's inerrant, infallible word. Listen as God speaks to us. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, thank you that you give us your word, that you reveal yourself to us in the Holy Scriptures. And here, this wonderful revelation of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's not only our Savior, but he's our servant. One who serves us, though he is the master. May we have a greater love for him. May we, indeed, bow to him this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Unlike the three gospel evangelists, if you read in your study Bibles, often they're referred to as the synoptic writers, the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Unlike them, John doesn't tell us the story about Jesus sending the disciples into town. You'll meet someone there in the street. He's going to look this way. You're going to say, hey, the master has need of a room. And he's going to say, sure, come on, I've got one. He's going to show you where it is. And you're going to make preparation for the Passover meal. The gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptics all do that. John doesn't. He just dumps us right in the middle of the meal. In fact, you see it there. Verse 2, during supper. So none of, the, none of the preliminary things. He has another purpose. This goes back to what I've said several times. I'll remind you today. John took all of the historical events of Jesus' life and he put them together to give us reasons to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a little theological treatise on the person and work of Jesus. It's not biographical. It doesn't follow a chronology. Everything's accurate. Everything's true. But it's there so that we can know why we believe. We've seen a number of those reasons. We're going to see more even today. And so John jumps right into the mealtime. He teaches us more about the Lord. He gives us more reasons to believe. And it's basically he's telling us that the Lord, who is sovereign, is our Savior. And the way he saved us was by serving us. So the title largely gives us the outline of these 20 verses. It talks about the Lord's love for us. It talks about this lesson that he gives us. And then he tells us what it means. Lord's love, lesson, and legacy. Let's jump right in. Let's go ahead and see. First point, the Lord's love is the end and is to the end. The Lord's love is the end. But it's also to the end. First thing, he had perfect knowledge concerning his destiny. You see it right there. It's wrapped up in the first verse. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. 
If you're looking at the original, it becomes quite clear this is something that he knew past. It was presently real to him, and he knew it would come to pass. There was no doubt about it. His perfect knowledge. You know, it's so easy for us to forget sometimes, isn't it? Because he took on flesh, and he was a man. It's easy for us to forget that he was never just a man. He was always the God-man. From the point of his conception, he was the God-man. He never ceased being God. We've even seen his glory revealed. There was at one point a, a heresy that broke into the church that Jesus emptied himself, taking the Philippians 2 verbiage, he emptied himself. That means he ceased being God. Oh no, then he can't save you if he ceased being God because only God can save sinners. But we can't understand this. This is, this is too, you know, we can't understand this. How could he be God and man? And so people decide because they can't in their finite, pathetic mind grasp that this man, Jesus Christ, could also be eternal God, then it's not true. But who needs a, who needs a God like that? Don't you love it when the cultists come to your door and you're talking with them and you realize they have a God made in their image? From the Mormons to the Jehovah's Witnesses to the Christian scientists and right on down the road you can go, their God is made in their image, something they can fathom, something they can grasp. And yet our Savior can't be grasped. You cannot with your finite mind comprehend that the eternal son of God, the eternal one could take on flesh and not lose anything, but only gain something. But that's why it's so remarkable. He's God. We need a God that we can't contain. We need a God that we cannot box in. We need a God that we can't fully explain. And yet, that doesn't mean, and this is part of John's whole point, I've told you these things so that you might believe. We may not be able to fully grasp it with our finitude. The finite can never grasp the infinite. We may not be able to, and we're certainly not able to, but that doesn't mean that our faith is irrational, unreasonable. And so John over and over says, even though you can't grasp this fully, here's another good reason to believe it. And this, this is all about that. Jesus knew that his hour had come. The fullness of time was upon him. He'd condescended from heaven. He had taken flesh. He'd lived under the law. He had kept the law fully. Now it was time to face the cross. Facing the cross meant that he would endure the infinite wrath of the Godhead. 
for the sins of his people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he knew. That's what he he was conscious of. And yet he proceeded right on to the cross. The fact that he knew it perfectly and pursued it is a good reason to believe. Second sub point here. That also meant he was about to return to the father. We see it right there. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father. So he's going to resume his session on the throne with the father. Revelation 3.21 tells us the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit. This is Jesus speaking in Revelation 3. Jesus speaking to his people, the church. And he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is the almighty, the all-knowing, the all-present, and he's seated on the throne with the Father. And he says that he's about to go back to the Father. The fact that he, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we've just seen this recently, in Sunday series with Pastor Sean, the one, the one who ascended, what does that mean but that he descended? So now he's in his descended state. He has descended to this earth, but he's going to ascend again. And when he does, he's going to give gifts to his church. And he has done that. He says here, I'm going to ascend again. And we already know 2,000 plus years later, that everything he promised his church that he would do upon his ascension, he has done and is doing. That's a good reason to believe. That brings us then to the third sub-point. The Lord's love is the end and it is to the end. Don't miss that his ascending means that we, if we're united to him, through a supernatural faith that only he can give to his people and only does give to his people, we will ascend with him because we're more than conquerors. We just saw that. And it's based on his love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What does that mean, he loved them to the end? Does it mean he loved them to the end of his life, the cross? Well, sure. I mean, he did. Does it mean he, he, he would love us to the end of the age? Yeah, yeah, it means that. Certainly it would mean that. Because he's ascended on high. He didn't cease existing. Does it mean that he loves us to this end, for this purpose, that we should be gathered with him in eternity and enjoy the new heavens and new earth? Yes. 
That's what the little word telos encompasses. It's to the end of his life, which is, is imminent. It's the end of the age, which we don't know when that is. And it's to the end, to the purpose of, that he will have us with him where he is. Just as he told that wretched thief on the cross next to him, this day you shall be with me in paradise. To the end that we will be with him for the purpose that we will be with him. Folks, look. If that's not a reason to believe in Jesus, a good reason to believe in Jesus, I don't know what is. That he loves us that thoroughly in our lifetime, through the course of the history of this, this, this world, and even to the end that he would have us in eternity with him. That's how much he loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's the Lord's love. Now we have him moving to the lesson. He's going to exemplify it. He's going to, he's going to portray it for them. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Let me just stop there for a moment. First of all, the devil had already moved to carry out this great heinous act against the Son of God. And he'd already laid claim to the one that would be part to it, and that's Judas. I'm going to say a little bit something about that in a moment, but just think about that for a moment. That should be frightening. That should be frightening to anyone to think about that. At the most, it should be sobering. He continues, Jesus, knowing, again, he knows that the Father had given all things into his hands. So the betrayal... Just follow the order here. The betrayal that's coming is going to accomplish something, but it's not what Satan thinks it's going to accomplish. All things are going to be placed in the hands of the Son. Jesus knew that. And that... He had come from God and he was going back to God. And in that moment, this infinite one, Jesus Christ, moves from around the table where they were reclining and he starts to wash their feet. Now, just notice the order John gives. The one who came from God and the one who was going to God. John's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is incidental. Nothing is unimportant. He wants us to understand that this is the master of the universe who is stooping as if he hadn't already stooped. 
just the condescension coming from heaven, coming into this corrupt world was a stooping unparalleled. And now he's going to take it to practice. And he's going to, he's going to stoop there and he's going to wash their feet. One commentator hits it right on the head. He says it, it, this washing, it foreshadows the cross itself. The voluntary humility of the Lord cleanses his loved ones and gives to them an example of selfless service which they must follow. Do you see the two points there? Wrapped up in this selflessness, this humility, this humble action of our Lord Jesus Christ is our salvation. But it's also an example for us. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Jesus is going to say, that's why I did this. Don't be sacramentalizing this thing, Jesus says. I was just giving you an example of how you're supposed to live with one another. But we'll say more about that in a moment. But it's marvelous too. I'm going to go back to, now back to, back to Judas and Satan. Over and over, we've seen this throughout John, haven't we? Time and again, that those wicked men sought to have Jesus to kill him. And all Jesus disappears out of their midst. He goes and he stays away from them. He knows what's in their heart, so he doesn't let them have the occasion to take him to the cross. And here's, here's what happens. 30-something years, the world and the flesh has not succeeded in doing what Satan wants done. And so Satan takes it on himself. Remember what we're told in the New Testament that our three great enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So far, the world and the flesh have failed miserably. And now here comes the devil. And the finite devil, let me emphasize that, the finite devil. You do know the devil is finite. I realize you probably have wasted your time reading some silly novels about Satan who seems to be everywhere knowing all things. Well, that's what you get for reading silly novels, particularly about God or Jesus or the devil. He's not infinite. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-present. He's finite. He's limited. Silly devil thinks, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to be done with this. But what the silly devil doesn't understand is that by sending him to the cross, he was not only going to give Jesus life, going back to the Father, ascending to the Father, resuming his place on the throne, but he was going to give eternal life to all his people. Satan thought killing would be the end. And God said, killing will be the beginning. Putting him to death means life. It doesn't mean death. 
Don't you love John? In verse 3, we learn that very thing about the cross. Leon Morris, who's one of the fine commentators on John, said that right here, we learn this about the cross. We learn where a great divine work was wrought out on the cross and the divine glory shone forth. See, in his death, glory, glory came to this earth. The Father had given all things into his Son's hands. In all the things that take place on the cross, perfect worship, Jesus is the perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrificial lamb for the perfect propitiation of sin. That's perfect worship. But also is the, is the remedy for our sin, the legal remedy for our sin. But it's more than that. On the cross is where the Father put everything in Christ's hands. He earned it all. It was all his. He rose the victor, possessing everything. Because he'd been appointed for that very thing. The ascension back is what confirms that. Verse 4 and 5, the illustration unfolds. In Luke, we have a simple little statement about it that simplifies all of this for us. With Jesus rising, wrapping, washing. I, Jesus said, am in the midst of you as he that serves. Now, if we went to the gospel accounts, you'll remember what's going on when I say this. We're having a discussion between the disciples as to who will be the greatest. You remember now? That's all going on in this context. And in the middle of them fussing and feuding about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus, the greatest, stands up and wraps himself to serve them. Verses 6 and 7. He came to Simon. Lord, do you wash my do you wash my feet? Jesus said, "What I'm doing, you do not understand." That's an understatement. Did Peter ever get it right the first time or second time or third time? We'll just go to the three times the the rooster crowed. What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And by the way, he did. We don't know exactly when he came to understand, but we know that he did. And we know it because in 1 Peter chapter 5, when he writes to the elders, he tells the elders to serve. 
And then he turns to the rest of the church, and particularly to the younger folks of the church, and says, in relation to the elders, be humble. Show humility. Somewhere in there, the spirit of the living God worked in Peter's life in such a way that it became a mark of Peter. It became a, an emphasis of Peter's preaching. Humility. Let's be humble. If you back up a couple of chapters, you see it even, though the word's not used, you see it conceptually when he says how we're supposed to go and speak the truth and love to other people. He says, with gentleness and respect. Not proud and haughtily, but gentleness and respect. So what he had little of And by the way, did you notice here, it, it, and I just have to believe John would have included this. Uh, one of the gospel writers would have included this. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, if, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter doesn't dare say, well, let me wash your feet. He says, okay, just wash me all then. So what Jesus said, you don't get it now, Peter, meant you really don't get it now, Peter, or else you'd be washing my feet. But Jesus lovingly stooped and washed his feet. But not before he gives him some instruction. He says, Jesus says to Peter, after he asked, do you wash my feet? What am I doing? You don't understand. Afterwards, you will. You'll never wash my feet. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said, Lord, do not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus instructs. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely unclean. What's he getting at? And you are clean, but not every one of you. And then John comments, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So verses 8 and 9, moving into 10, remind us that we don't have to go to the Lord over and over, begging him to save us. You, you, you have friends who live with this great fear that maybe they're not saved. I've prayed a prayer I've, I've, as best I can. I, I think I believed in Jesus. I've tried, uh, I've tried to believe in Jesus. I think I believe in Jesus. I'm pretty sure I believe in Jesus. I, I've, but I'm not sure. And in some traditions, they get an opportunity every week to come down and pray the prayer again. And Jesus says, that's not what you need. Once you've trusted me, I'll not disappoint you. Once you believe in me, you're saved. All these people coming to the feast, remember the context, we're, we're at the feast of Passover. All these people traveling in, they come into Jerusalem and they go to their lodging and they bathe from their long journey. Now they get up and they come to the context of the Passover meal. 
They have bathed. They stinketh no longer. But before they went in to, to eat, what would they do? They walked the streets and their shoes, unlike those Western movies, you know, don't you love it? The women with their dresses dragging the dirt and uh, their shoes and they walk in to wherever they go and their dresses are still perfectly clean and there's no, and their shoes are shiny. Well, that's not the case in the Middle East in reality, even anywhere in the world. By the time they went to the Passover meal, their feet were dirty and it was the job of the host, the master of the house, to provide for them and to wash their feet. They didn't need to be washed all over. They had come to the feast of Passover because they belonged there. They just simply needed those incidental specks of dirt, clumps of dirt. And that's the way with you and with me. Day after day, week after week, we don't need to be saved again. We don't need to go, go back to the Lord and beg for forgiveness, for salvation, and fear that if he doesn't forgive us, we'll go to hell forever. But we do go back to him for those incidental sins of the day and the week to be cleansed, to be taken away from us, to take, be, have the burden taken off our shoulders so that the fellowship that we have with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can be new and fresh every morning. So the Lord says, a sign of being part with me is that you want your sins dealt with over and over and over again as you commit them. Now that's a good lesson for us. If you're sitting here this morning, you claim to be a believer, but you've not asked God to forgive you for a sin. In fact, you hadn't thought about any sins lately. That might suggest you're not clean that you do need cleansing all over. But the Lord says, if we've trusted him, if we're in union with him, we don't need to be washed all over. We just need our feet washed. We need those, those recent sins dealt with, that recent dirt that clings to us. We know this is about salvation and belonging to Christ because... He throws in, he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. He's talking about Satan, of course, or of, of Judas having, having taken up the work of Satan. One last point. I hate to short shrift this, but time doesn't allow. Verses 10 through 20. He explains what this is all about. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, resumed his place, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher. In other words, you've acknowledged I'm Lord. You've acknowledged I'm, I'm over you. I'm the one that you respect. I'm the one that has the words of life for you. If, if then I am... And I have taught you this, then you ought to do likewise. You ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you, notice he does not say, to the end of the earth. He says, I've given you example. 
that you should do just as I've done to you. A servant is not greater than his master, a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. We're to serve one another. That's what it's all about. That's what the lesson is. The Lord serves his people. He deals with their sins. And then we're out of gratitude to turn around and serve one another. Lowly. With humility. I I said earlier, this is not a sacrament. It's not meant to be an ordinance of the church. The reason is, unlike baptism and the Lord's Supper, is nowhere is it repeated in the New Testament as we have with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Nowhere in the New Testament do you have instructions given on how you would do this and the proper mode, means of doing this in the context of a worship service. It's just what Jesus said it was. It's that simple, really. Don't be pietistic and try to make something of it. It's not. But also... Take it seriously that we're to, in humility and sacrificial love, serve one another. That's hard to do, isn't it? Some people are easier to serve than others. And by the way, sometimes serving one another is tough because the person who needs helping is just a stiff-necked, recalcitrant, hard-headed, thick-skinned sinner. And I'm talking about some of you. No, I'm fine. I don't need anything. No. We all need. We all have needs. If we're breathing, we have needs. And the scripture says that we're to serve one another. The reason Paul said that is because Jesus did this. Serve one another. If the Lord came to save and to serve, we ought to serve and tell others of his saving. That should be our aim going out the door today. Father, thank you. We ask your blessings on your word now in Jesus' name. Amen.